And so let me read the scriptures for us this morning that Doug will be teaching out of us. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. And so hear now the word of the Lord. Now Ahab told Jezebel that everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. At once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked on over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please extend a warm welcome to Doug Swaggerty. Thank you, Lewis. It's uh, great to be with you this morning, and uh, thank you for the very warm introduction. Last year, I had the 
privilege for about six months of being an interim pastor down in San Diego at a church that I had planted, helped to plant 20 years ago. And so I knew most of the leaders in the church. I knew some of the staff, but there were others of the staff that I had never met before. And our very first staff meeting was a Zoom call where we were all introducing ourselves to one another. And one of the young ladies who was on staff was trying to pay me a compliment. And she said what she meant to say was your, that, that phrase, your reputation precedes you. But what came out of her mouth was, your reputation exceeds you. And as soon as she said it, I, I just started laughing. I said, I can, I can relate to that. Certainly my reputation exceeds who I am. And she was so embarrassed. But it was, a, it was just a funny way to, uh, to meet her for the first time there in, in, that, uh, in that setting. This morning, I want to talk to you about the matter of our stories and how our stories function in our lives and we're going to use this big story of Elijah uh, in order to get to some truths about that that I hope will be helpful to us. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, thank you for the privilege to bring your word to these people this morning. And I pray that you would take uh, the, what you've given to me, the loaves and fishes you've given to me, and, and feed your people here. Uh, feed us because we need to hear from you and we need the bread of life. And so, Lord, we, we thank you in advance for all that you will uh, teach us and remind us of, and, and Lord, change our stories even as we uh, understand your story more this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I talk about stories and ask the question, what's your story? What I'm really referring to are the ways in which we process reality in our lives. It starts when we are, are just young tykes and we begin to grow up and we experience different things and our, our world view just begins to be shaped by our family, by our school, by our friends, by things that are happening in our, in our society. We, we continue to grow and we continue to be bombarded by all those things and we end up somewhere in our lives. At every point, we've got a story that, uh, that makes up our lives. This is how we process reality. This is the lens through which we see the world. And I wanted to ask you that question this morning. What is your story? How do you perceive the world? What is it that, uh, what are the themes that come through when you think about the story that God has given to you? We, we live in a, a society that many have said, and I believe it to be true, this, we've never had a society, a culture that's been more polarized than it is right now. There's things that we find it hard and difficult just to even talk about because immediately we feel like we're in combat with one another. And one way of looking at that polarization and that kind of combat is that we all are coming at different issues, whether it be health issues or racial issues or political issues or whatever it might be, we're coming at them from the perspective of our stories. And we're bringing our stories into that discussion and, and we have certain themes that we want to uh, reserve and certain themes that we might want to advance. But in any case, uh, that, that combat of stories is often what brings about that polarization. Now, our stories affect how we look at the world. Our stories affect how we also prioritize our lives. But the one thing that I want you to leave with more than anything else this morning is the understanding that our stories really affect how we view ourselves, how we view ourselves, what we think about ourselves in relationship uh, to our Lord. Every moment of every day 
uh, we're booting off of, of that story. There are very few of what I would call brute facts. You know, it's, it's like, we, it's not just what's out there, but it's how we perceive what's out there, how we process that. Uh, we, we could have someone trying to compliment us like uh, my staff person was uh, a year ago, and it comes out wrong, and, and it, it was unintentional, but... Uh, you, you know, we get into these other situations where people say things and we're immediately drawn into conflict or we immediately feel a resonance with a person because of where, where they're coming from. All those things relate to our story. And the question this morning is, how does, what is your story and where does God fit into your story? And I want us to see the significance and importance of this by looking at this episode in the life of Elijah. Elijah was a fascinating character who kind of comes onto the scene in 1 Kings almost out of nowhere. It's just like Elisha the Tishbite, and, and it starts talking about all these things he's doing. He prays these incredible prayers that, that stop rain and, and bring rain, and, and uh, it seems like he's, he's pulling more strings than he has the, the right to do. Um, there's a, an encounter he has where he, he stays with a widow at Zarephath, and that widow is, uh, has very little. She has a son and, and very little means to live by. She shares those means with Elijah. And that's the story where uh, the oil and, and the flour just continued uh, to be there every morning, miraculously, to provide for Elijah. There came a point then in that story where the widow's son actually died. And Elijah uh, takes the child to the upper room and prays over the child and raises, the Lord uses him to raise the child from the dead. Now, when you read that story, you may, you may think, oh, well, a resurrection story. You know, the we, we, Bible's full of those. Jesus rose. Jesus raised Lazarus. There are other people who, who were raised from the dead. But there wasn't one that we have a record of before this one in 1 Kings. So Elijah's kind of flying by the seat of his pants here. He, there's no conference that he could go to on how to raise the dead. Uh, that wasn't even something people thought happened. But Elijah was such a man of God. He, he was so in tune with what God wanted to do with his life that he prayed over this child and the child was raised from the dead. He goes from that episode to this situation in 1 Kings 18 where he has an encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the scripture that Lewis read out of chapter 19 this morning, it began with, now after these things. So this is what it's talking about, what happened in the aftermath of what, what went on in Mount Carmel. And what went on in Mount Carmel, uh, that, that's like a whole nother five sermons in and of itself, so I can't get into all the details, but you remember the scene. It's, it's probably the most dramatic scene of demonstrating God's power in the Old Testament. Maybe the crossing of the Red Sea ranks up there, but uh, I, if you had one place uh, in all of the Old Testament that you could say, I'd, I could like to be, do time travel and be transported back and see that event, this would rank right up there with, with all the rest that you might think of. Um, they, they have this contest where there's like 900 prophets, uh, 450 of Baal and 400 other prophets who are calling upon God their God to come down and burn up a sacrifice uh, and 
they cry out, they cut themselves, they carry on all day long, and nothing happens. And at the end of the day, it's Elijah's turn. And if you remember the story, he, he has the, the altar not only built, but he has it drenched with water, 12 big jars of water that are thrown onto the altar. And then he prays to the Lord and fire comes down out of heaven and consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar, consumes the water. And, and in the aftermath of that, uh, Elisha picks up the sword and he, and he slays the prophets of Baal. But it's just this incredible demonstration of the power of God. And you think, what more could someone want in order to be confident about who God is and what God wants to do through his life? But then what happens is the story that we read this morning. Elijah goes from this moment of extreme victory and dramatic encounter uh, with, with these people to being on his own and being discouraged and being depressed. It says that uh, in the passage we read, it says that Jezebel, the queen, um, swore that she would get Elijah. And I think at that point, Elijah, that, that kind of threw him for a loop because I, I, I'm thinking that Elijah thought after what happened on Mount Carmel, she's going to give up. She'll, she'll hightail it. She's not going to stick around waiting for anything to happen at that point. But she kind of doubles down and she says, if, if, uh, if I don't do to Elijah what he did to the prophets, you know, that's, uh, that's my plan. That's what I'm going to do. And, and Elijah is terrified by this. Uh, 900 prophets, he's, he stood with God and was part of that miracle. But this one queen, um, he was shaking in his boots. At the, at the next day. And Elijah went into despair and said that he wanted to die. And God prepares him for this journey. He, uh, God says to him, we're going to take this long journey for 40 days and you need to be prepared. He, God takes care of him. He feeds him. He gives him rest. And then Elijah starts out on this journey. And the journey is to Mount Horeb, we're told. Now, Mount Horeb is uh, scholars, when they analyze Mount Horeb and what happens there and other, other mountains that are prominent in the Old Testament, they identify Mount Horeb with Mount Sinai. This is the same place. And Mount Horeb was the place where God had met with Moses in the burning bush back when Moses was at that end of the 40 years of, of being a shepherd out in the desert. He went up into the mountain, Mount Horeb, and that's where he saw the Lord in the burning bush that wasn't consumed. And then later on, after, um, after he would bring the people out of Egypt, God gave him the law on that very mountain. And so uh, Elijah is going back to that same mountain. He's going to make a journey that by the time he left Mount Carmel and went down to Beersheba, took a day's trip out into the desert, it says, uh, he still had about 260 miles to go. And he did it over the course of, of 40 days. Now, 260 miles, let me, let me uh, give you an understanding of what that would be. Uh, it would be like going from Irvine up to Cambria. You know, where Cambria, that's the gateway to Big Sur up on the coast in, in Northern California. And you think, well, that's kind of a cool walk. You know, we could, we could go through LA, we could go up through Santa Barbara and, and the wine country and San Simeon and and San Luis Obispo, and we'd end up in Cambria. But that's not the kind of route that Elijah was going to take. It was more like this. Let's go to Las Vegas, and we're going to walk it. So you go to Victorville, and you go to Barstow, 
and you go to Baker, you know, Baker's that place where they got that big thermometer that reminds you how miserable you are uh, in, in the car on the way to Las Vegas, and you finally get to Las Vegas. That's about the distance that Elijah had to travel, and that journey from Irvine to Las Vegas was more like the journey that he took than the journey from Irvine to Cambria would be. And Elijah had 40 days. At that rate, he would have been traveling about six and a half, six to seven miles a day. And six to seven miles a day in sandals, in, in terrain that was uh, very dangerous and very threatening to him. But he had those 40 days to think about his story. Because he knew God was taking him there, and he assumed that when he gets there, he's going to have this discussion with God, and God's going to want to hear his story. So for 40 days, walking from Irvine to Las Vegas, he's thinking through, what's my story? What am I going to say when God asks me why I am here? He has all that time to put that together. And he finally gets there, and God asks him, uh, God says to him, Moses, or Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he comes up with his story. This is his story. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. That's his story that he's thought of for 40 days on, on this road from Beersheba all the way down to, to Mount Horeb. And I think that in Elijah's mind, when he realized where God was sending him, Elijah probably thought, this is, my, this is my way of processing it anyway, I try to think through what would Elijah have been thinking of. Maybe what he was thinking of was that this was going to be the bookend event, that in a sense, God started this whole a thing with the nation of Israel led by Moses on Mount Horeb. And now God was going to send Elijah back down there. And it was going to be a bookend event where uh, we kind of wrap things up. And we wrap things up with a failure. And so what Elijah is thinking that he's going to do at Mount Horeb is really uh, kind of walk through a postmortem of the nation of Israel with God. And so he says, God, you know, I've been zealous. I've tried my best. Uh, but they're killing all the prophets, and I'm the only one left. And he's basically saying, God, this whole, this whole plan, this whole uh, thing that we've been, journey we've been on for all these years has come to become a failure, and there's nowhere else for us to go. Now, what's the problem with Elijah's story? I'll pause here just for a moment before we go on to see what what God does. The problem with Elijah's story, I see it in three points here. One is that it's focused on fear and not on faith. He's focused on this threat from Jezebel and Ahab, and, and he's not trusting in the faith that he had on Mount Carmel. Secondly, it's focused on his circumstances and not on God's promises. Uh, he's not thinking through what God has pledged to Elijah. He's thinking about what's in front of his face. But finally, thirdly, it's focused on himself and not on God. It's focused on himself and not on God. I've done this. I've done that. Now here's what's happened. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me too. It's all self, very self-centered focus that Elijah has here. And he believes that what's really happened is that God's plan has failed, and he's exhibit A of that plan. 
But what we come to understand is that Elijah really sees himself as being more crucial to God's plan than what he really is. He thinks his, God's plan hinges on Elijah and what God will do through Elijah. And God wants to tell Elijah here on Mount Horeb that that's, that's not the way it works, Elijah. And so God uh, sets Elijah up for this scene. It's interesting when, uh, in, when you look in the book of Exodus, there is an instance of God appearing to Moses and he's, he draws Moses out into the, uh, to see him. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't. You can't see it and live, but I'll show you the backside of me. And, and, and God draws him out and hides him in the cleft of a rock. Some people feel that this cave that Elijah was in in 1 Kings 19 was that very same spot where God had spoke to Moses uh, back, back in those days. Elijah's trying to uh, walk those same footsteps to get in touch with Moses because he, he feels in some ways Moses started it all, I've ended it all, and here we are. And so God puts him in this cave and he, he, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to show myself to you. And what we have then is this uh, occasion. And again, we could go a long time talking about this, but it says there's a great and powerful wind that, that went through and tore all the rocks up. But it said that God was not in the wind. And then there was this earthquake. And, and you could almost sense that as Elijah is being bombarded by these manifestations of God's power, which is really what he wanted. He wanted to, to see God's power again. Uh, he's at the mouth of the cave, and as the wind goes through, you can almost see him kind of backing up in the cave. And then the fire comes, and, and he backs up even further. But it says God wasn't, in, God wasn't in, in the fire. And before that, the earthquake, God wasn't in the earthquake. And it's almost as if Elijah's now in the back of the cave, pinned in the back, and, and fearful of coming out because of the, of the power that God has demonstrated to him in front of that cave. And then it says, fourthly, that then God came in a gentle whisper. God came in a gentle whisper. And we're not told what God whispered to Elijah. You know, when God met with Moses in that, on that rock, on that mountain, uh, that was the time in which God said, the Lord is compassionate. The Lord is full of mercy. Those were the words that, that God gave to Moses. And maybe it's those similar kinds of words that God is giving to Elijah. But as God began to whisper to Elijah and Elijah's pinned in the back of the cave, you can kind of picture Elijah kind of moving out, trying to hear what God is saying and being drawn. And what he's being drawn to is not just the front of the cave. He's being drawn into relationship with God. And God is telling Elijah, this is far more important than your story here. Your story has a lot of things about it that don't describe the full picture. But what's most important to me right now, Elijah, is that you be drawn into relationship with me. And so he, he whispers to draw Elijah out uh, to him. And Elijah, at that point, um, he, he's there at the mouth of the cave. And God says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Now, Lewis read the story. Uh, I've read verse 10. Listen to verse 14. And as you listen to verse 14, when God asks Moses after, or asks Elijah after this great display of his power and then the gentle whisper, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Try to pick out the difference between what Elijah says here with what he said at the beginning. 
In verse 10, verses verse 14. In verse 14, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Do you notice the difference between verse 10 and 14? That's a trick question. There is no difference. There is no difference. For all the times that, that you may think to yourself, man, if I just had the, the advantage of having um, an encounter with God like, like Elijah had or like Moses had or, or like the disciples would have had at some points, if I had just had that, my faith would be so much stronger. My story would be so much different. I, I'd be able so much better to embrace the truth of the gospel in my lives, in my life. But here is Elijah telling God his story. God appears to him in this miraculous way, drawing him into relationship, and it doesn't, his story doesn't budge. And I want you to see from that, friends, just the power that these stories have in our lives. The story that was, uh, it was convoluted, it wasn't full, it was based on fear and not, and not faith. It was based on circumstances and not promises, but it had a grip on Elijah's life, so much so that an encounter with the living God could not change it one single word. He repeats the same thing. And after that, God responds to Elijah and, and he gives him some marching orders. And in some ways, I think this is kind of like in, in Exodus 3 when God, 3 and 4, when God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to use you to lead your, your people out. And if you know that story, you know, Moses gives like four or five, six excuses to God. And finally, at the end of the sixth excuse, God says, it says God was angry with Moses. He said, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. You know, pick up the rod and go. You're going to be the leader. And, and you, we don't get that expression of God's anger here, but what we get is God being very direct with Elijah. After Elijah has repeated this story for the second time, which he believes is a summary, it's the postmortem, it's, it's what encapsulates his life before the Lord. He repeats it and God says to him, go. I, I think you could summarize the message of, of the last few verses that we've read in the text here, that God's first telling him, chill out. Uh, there's no Greek word for chill out, but it's almost like that's, I, I get the feeling that's what God is telling Elijah here. Elijah, just chill, because there's a bigger story than what you've reduced this all down to. Uh, there's a bigger story here. And, and uh, what I want you to do, secondly, is to go back to work. Fulfill your calling. What the, one of the things the prophets did was to go around and anoint people. And he says, go anoint a couple of kings and then go find Elisha and anoint Elisha and he'll take the mantle from you and things will, will keep on going. Because what God is trying to tell Elijah right there is that my plan is bigger than your dreams. My plan is bigger than your dreams. See, Elijah had all these dreams about what it would be. And I think in some ways, Elijah kind of had this feeling like on God's team, uh, he was the closer. If, if you're a baseball fan, you know what that word would mean. On every baseball team, there's usually about 10 or 11 pitchers. 
And, and sometimes the most important and significant pitcher that you have on your baseball team is what they call the closer. He's the one who comes in in the ninth inning these days and, and pitches only one inning, but he's the one who's going to finalize everything and, and clean up everything. And he's got to be good. He's got to throw 100 miles an hour. And he's, and he's got to be able to have control and, and to mow down batters and, and finish the game. And I think Elijah felt like... I, I've got to be God's closer here after what happened on Mount Carmel. This has got to be the end of the game, and, we, and we've got to trot off in victory. But then he's thrown into this, into this despair, and, and he realizes that he wasn't the closer, and it just kind of knocks him off balance. And what God is trying to say here to Elijah when he says, go anoint the kings, find Elijah, Elisha, and anoint him, is he's saying to Elijah, Elijah, you're not the closer. You're not the closer. In fact, you're like middle relief, Elijah. <laughs> and, and again, if you're a baseball fan, you know that the middle relief pitchers are usually the, the bottom of the totem pole on the team. They're the ones that come in in the third, fourth inning. And, and if you're really getting beat, they'll put you on the mound to take up innings so that they don't have to use all the good pitchers, you know. And God is saying, Elijah, we're, we're still early. It's still early in this game. We're only in the third or fourth inning. It's not over. My plans are bigger than your dreams. And God's plan would eventually unfold for Elijah uh, some 900 years later. God didn't share with Elijah what his plan was there on Mount Horeb. But some 900 years later, there's another scene where God <clears throat> appears in Jesus Christ to Elijah. And who's Elijah with on the Mount of Transfiguration? He's with Moses. So this one that Elijah thought he, he most resembled, he wanted to emulate, he, he thought Moses started, I'll finish. They're there on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus shows up on that mount with Peter and James and John. And Peter is just astonished at this. This is like the Hall of Fame as far as Peter is concerned. It's like, let's, and, and Peter says, let's build three shelters here. Let's build three monuments. One to Moses, one to Elijah, one to Jesus. And it's at that point that the cloud descends over the mountain. And when it's lifted off, uh, Moses and Elijah aren't there anymore. And a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son. This is my son. This is the closer. This is the plan that God had in mind all along. Not that Elijah was going to usher in the kingdom, but that his son would. And his son would usher that kingdom in by doing everything he did for us, by living for us, and by going to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, we have the account of the transfiguration. And what it says is that two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. At Jerusalem. That was a euphemism, wasn't it? His departure. They spoke about him being crucified. And here finally, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is opening up to Moses and Elijah what this has all been about. That this wasn't just about having a great country, you know, a thousand years before the time of Christ, one little country that would, uh, the country of Israel that would be blessed and be a blessing. Uh, but God's agenda, God's plan was a worldwide plan that God would bring and send his son to the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so he brings Jesus into the world to live for us. 
and to die for us. And, and what happens uh, as a result of the gospel is that we can have a hope and we can have our stories changed completely uh, from what they were. Uh, it's true for us, friends, that just as it was true for Elijah, that God's plan is bigger than our dreams. God's plan is bigger than our dreams. What's, what's your biggest dream that you have? And God says, that's nothing. That's nothing. You need to set your sights higher because I've got a bigger plan in mind. And it has to do with the salvation that I'm giving you through Christ by faith, that, um, that you can receive this and be, be in my family, that you can, have, um, you can have a relationship with me that's mediated through my son who's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. You see, so often our stories uh, that, that encapsulate our lives, they kind of default down to the lowest common denominator. I don't know if you feel that way. That's, that's how it is with me. When I think so much about my story, I think about the worst. I think about the things that, that really drag me down. I, I'm there with Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19. I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, upset because things aren't better, that I'm not better, that I haven't done what, what I should have done. And friends, what we, we come to realize is that if our stories don't leave room for God, that the gospel is always going to seem to be good, uh, too good to be true. It's going to be too good to be true in our lives. But if we leave room for God in our stories, in your story, in my story, if we leave room for God, then all of a sudden the things that would, would tend to discourage and, and depress us are things that we see covered by what Jesus has done for us. Brian Stevenson, who uh, was the um, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, African-American man, he was the one that they did the um, movie Just Mercy uh, about. Uh, his, his initiative is about trying to help people that have been falsely accused or misrepresented in court to get really their day in court. It's a wonderful ministry that he has. But one of the things that has motivated Brian Stevenson as he deals with each and every person he talks to, most of whom are, uh, you know, the people he's representing are people in jail for one thing or another. And the one thing that keeps him going is a simple phrase that he repeats over and over again, that each of us, each of us is more than the worst thing we've done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've done because of God's story because of what Jesus has done for us. Jerry Bridges has said that your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. Friend, let that be in the center of your story. Whatever makes up the rest of your story, let that be at the center. Let the gospel sink in. Believe it and let it change your story today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us a story that goes far beyond our dreams, that your plans for us are plans that we can't even begin to describe or understand because they go so far beyond what we can hope or think. And Lord, we thank you for your love for us that took you to this world first to live so misunderstood and persecuted, but ultimately to the cross to die for us 
so that we could live with you. Make that our story, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.